everyone, welcome back to the Earth on Survival Guide, the podcast for all disciplines, paths, players, and game masters. With your questers, Josh and Dan, I'm Dan. I am Josh. And on today's podcast, we'll be discussing all things quizzical, because we have pretty much an all-email episode, because we've been wait- sitting on these for a couple of weeks. So if you have any questions for us about anything at all, please contact us at edsgpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can now leave uh, comments on our YouTube channel because we have some, uh, we actually picked one up. So uh, he's going to go first because <laughs> I think this is the guy who's been playing catch up with us, right? Uh, possibly, yes. Yeah. This has actually come in really quickly. Uh, Thanks, gentlemen, for entertaining my email. Correct me if I need to be corrected about updating the previous first through third edition adventures, but wouldn't dedicating resources to updating the fourth edition adventures be more cost effective than coming up with newer written adventures? Also, I think an e-supplement for the characters in a pinch, be they non-magical humanoid or natural animal, it would be a great tool worth getting, especially for those beginning game masters. I did check Panda's Rogues Gallery. Great stuff, by the way. And it would work for running into other adepts in a pinch. But aren't those characters, when met, usually fleshed out in campaigns already due to their importance? The in a pinch supplement could go like this. Adept archer. Hey, I'm hunting for deer, fowl, or rabbit, for whatever reason, for the party. Instead of saying, okay, you come back three hours later with your kill, you want to make a little impromptu side adventure as to show off his abilities to himself or others. Or when that drunken tavern orc picks a fight because he earned death sentences in 12 bar save regions. You can show him why he should pick his fights more carefully. And you can do that when those you want to do what tangents come about by pulling out your handy dandy CIP e-supplement. So thank you, Digital Hermit. Josh? So to address the first part of that with regards to updating adventures, you would think it would be a lot easier to update the adventures (laughs) than to just come up with new ones. And if all you're doing is updating stat blocks, then maybe. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to do revisions like that, that are going to go out as an official product, they would end up needing a development pass or editing or rewriting or something like that. I mean, Red Brick did the adventure compendium, which was sort of updated versions of the original adventures and that was its own project and a half so yes in one regard that also treads into the area of how much do we just want to re-release old stuff with new numbers i think we're far enough along in fourth edition that Longtime fans of the game who have the stuff in previous editions would not be upset by us releasing something like that, but it's still a case of resources where we've already got all of us working on other projects. When somebody finishes something up and what are they looking to work on, it's a matter of somebody wanting to do that. Um, And if they're original projects that are of more interest, then that's where the resources are going to be devoted. Because as I've mentioned multiple times, we're all doing this on the side as around day gigs and doing it for the love of the game and such. Yeah. Passion, passion project. Yeah. So yes, you are in some ways not wrong, but it's also a little bit more complicated than that. (laughs) Fair enough. With regards to the e-supplement thing and the sort of expansion that you go about on that, I 
guess I understand what you're getting at there. I don't necessarily see the value in creating stat blocks for mundane wildlife that wouldn't normally pose any kind of hazard to the group. And I am also a big believer in reskinning things, like taking the stat block for one thing and having it appear in the costume of something else. So, yeah. Well, I think it's just talking like generic NPCs, maybe. Yeah, but that's, again, a case where sort of like there's a bunch of stat blocks that are, again, looking at Morgan's mm-hmm. Rogues Gallery, there's a, a bunch of those sort of already created. Yeah. And just kind of grab something. Well, and somebody inventive, not me, could probably download most of those, compact them down onto like a three by five index card, print them out or whatever, you know, make four or five cards per eight and a half by 11 page, pa- piece of paper. Again, not me, but somebody could <laughs> for their own home personal use. Yeah. Appreciate the the feedback and the comment on the YouTube channel. That's pretty cool. Absolutely. Glad you're catching up. If you decide for whatever reason that you want to do a little impromptu side adventure, how much help you're going to need will largely depend on your comfort level with improvisation and using the system therein. It may be that I'm just too enveloped in everything, that I am more willing to just kind of make stuff up on the fly. Yeah, I know that, for example, there are a lot of popular PDF supplements on places like DriveThruRPG that mm-hmm. is just, hey, here is a 20-page PDF that is just random tables of stuff that you can roll on to get stuff yeah. to populate with like this theme or whatever. For certain types of people, that can work really well either as a initial source of inspiration or something to kind of help get those creative juices flowing. I've not ever really been the person to use those sorts of things so but if you need that tool those tools are out there yeah i don't want it to sound like i'm sort of poo-pooing why would somebody need that because i personally don't need it i know it takes all kinds and people have different approaches and different comfort levels and different skill levels when it comes to stuff and again it's like adapting the adventures it would require someone to have the desire to work on something like that and to make a business case in a sense for it to be something worth investing those resources into. We got an interesting email from Lars a little while ago. He sent over this link from from a nature.com article, which I will not bore everybody else with. It's not really a boring article, but I'm just saying if I read it out loud, It would be boring. So I'm going to pass over that idea. We can put it in the show notes if you want. Turns out, this is what Lars says, turns out an infection with a parasite makes wolves more likely to be the leader of their pack. So should we screen our own leaders? Jokes aside, he just wanted to give us feedback that he has one player that is dyslexic and the EDSG podcast enables her to take part in the game, which is very, very cool. His question is, have there been any, has there already been an episode about named elementals? Have fun, Lars. 
Not specifically. I think we did talk about elementals as part of a spirits episode that we did at some point in the past. And we may have talked about named spirits as part of that. Mm -hmm. So, yes, I don't recall offhand what episode number it might be. But it would likely be something that is in the title of the episode. So if you pull up the feed, the episode list and just kind of scroll through it, then my guess is it's probably in the first hundred episodes, but probably like in the latter half of that, like 50 to 100. There we go. I I was I have been, you know, working on getting older episodes up onto YouTube and I'm like 30 odd episodes in at this point. And I know I hadn't hit it yet, (laughs) but it also felt like something that we would have talked about relatively early. Yeah, 45, that's probably the one where we cover most of that. By the way, to get back to the thing that Lars shared, independent of his email about that, is I actually heard about that story as well, and now I cannot recall specifically because I don't have the article up in front of me, but it's about the bacteria that uh, traditionally is like infects felines. Yes. It requires, like, it only reproduces in felines, but it can get into species, into other species. Like, people can pick it up as well. Like, if their house cats have it, it is possible for them yeah. to to get it. But, yes, it turns out that, that wolves in the wild who become infected with this, it actually does alter their behavior and makes them more likely to take risks and tread into areas and expand into areas that are more traditionally like cougar and mountain lion territory to Mm. give the bug, for lack of a better term, a greater opportunity to cross back into the cougars in order to be able to reproduce. And that sort of change in behavior does lead those infected wolves to be more likely to be pack leaders and stuff. It's It's a fascinating bit of how we are coming more and more to understand how much of our biology and behavior and everything is also tied into those other organisms that live in and on us. Yes. Midichlorians. Kidding, kidding, kidding. The joke was there. On to Jean-Baptiste. Oh, JB, yeah. Yeah. Hello, Josh and Dan. It's kind of a long one. Uh, Another email of the drunk windling, unable to focus on listening the episodes in order. Which leads me to, th- to listen to episode 12. I think it was 12. Windling alcohols also affect memory. And jump to 130. Something from here. Again, episode numbers are non-contractual. I have come back to Earthdawn after a long hiatus. But above all, went from player to, du- to game master. I remember how as a player, there were so, many, so much stuff at Earthdawn that struck hard onto my imagination. And see how now, 20 years later, and more aware about storytelling, some of this stuff I find so nice in the setting, while sometimes struggling as a game master to offer an interesting story, including these elements of the setting and mechanics. Anyway, in Earthdawn setting and mechanics can't really be dealt separately. In storytelling, I think pacing is key. And there's a few elements where I always have a hard time incorporating while having an interesting pacing for the story. I'd like to share my struggles, my strategies to deal with them and see how, with your experience, you can recommend other ways. First, many but not all good stories are fast-paced. Even if there may be some fade to black in the story that are actually downtime, 
Many epic stories seem to happen in matters of days, or at least it requires a lot of narrative talent that I don't pretend to have to incorporate downtimes and extra story arcs without killing the story. In the other end, Earth Dawn, taking into account masters to, pro to progress circles and key knowledge to unlock threat items powers is so cool, but I never seem to be able to give it naturally the actual pacing to incorporate the story. While I dislike the video gamey, you leveled up chime, I have several times included circle upgrades as being intuitions and epiphanies instead of training to allow players to circle up without breaking the story flow. I have also used immersive intuitive visions of the past of a threat item instead of actual scholarly research to actually allow progress in the course of a fast-paced campaign. What are your tips and tricks to keep pacing up while allowing characters to progress? My first suggestion is to try and reduce the amount of time that is spent in a downtime period. And by that, I mean real world at the table time. Mm -hmm. There is certainly a lot of value in giving those training montages and downtime periods as an opportunity to maybe give spotlight time to a particular character where, for whatever reason, you do that sort of thing. One way that you might think about it is to take on the idea of, from TV shows, it's kind of referred to as the bottle episode, which is a, an episode that frequently it takes place in a very limited space and is often either flashbacks that like the worst kind of bottle episode is often like a clip show kind of thing where they're just showing mm -hmm. clips from previous episodes, but that you might use that sort of situation as an opportunity to highlight character growth or character development or relationships or something like that, where you can have a, an episode for lack of a better term that is exploring or looking at the consequences of things that might have gone on earlier. That's one way that you can do it. Again, this is a, a lot of times a personal taste kind of thing. I think that there is value in giving things an opportunity to breathe and giving space for character development and stuff like that to happen. That just by the nature of being a game that on some level is a simulation of how this world actually works, where there are rules in terms of how much time you need to spend training or meditating or learning or doing research or stuff like that, that in a TV show or a movie or a book might be glossed over or kind of skipped to the good parts or fade to black or whatever. Yeah. And I can recognize that people might want to go with a more cinematic approach in that respect where you have a two-minute training montage rather than spending an entire game session. On downtime. On downtime. But it, there is also a possibility that downtime or shopping episodes or whatever could allow the opportunity to, rather than be focused on plot, 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 plot all the time, just gives the characters a chance, gives the players a chance 
to explore their characters and role play and maybe find out things about their character that they hadn't considered before in a more domestic kind of situation or a or a lower pressure kind of situation. There is a value, I think, in giving things a chance to breathe and, and to give players who might be into that the opportunity to do that kind of character work or exploration. With regards to things like progressing items, learning the key knowledge or the research necessary in order to advance those, I definitely recognize how that could be something that can throw off the pacing of a game. And I think my best advice on that is if pacing and trying to keep things moving is one of your higher priorities, especially if that's something that's kind of shared around the table, that you need to do a lot more forethought and prep when it comes to the magic items that you've got in the game and the information that's going to need to be learned in order to use them. In that kind of situation, you don't want to go with the random magic item that's going to have key knowledge that is not really connected at all to whatever story arc or campaign arc or whatever that you might be working on, because then these side quests maybe feel like they're killing the momentum when it comes to major events, and that you just need to figure out how to tie those things together, which is part of the reason why I really like Blades, to go back to something that I bring up a lot. <laughs> there are examples in there where there is key knowledge that you need to learn, and the adventures that are taking place around the acquisition of that knowledge are tied into, at least in the original release of Blades and kind of where it was placed in the release schedule, were hinting at some of the things that eventually led into the refounding of Carafad and that whole arc from Prelude to War. That that exploration of the Orc Nation and the history and stuff kind of tied into that larger arc overall. And I think it's just a case of planning and going, okay, these are the items that I'm going to have. How can I have them tie into whatever larger arc is going on? One of the things that does often come up in online discussions is well, I've got a group of five characters. Each of them has an item that has its own history. I'm not going to be able to do my big story arc if mm -hmm. all that they are doing is researching and, and exploring those key knowledges. Well, not even just that, but I need to do an adventure where the wizard goes and finds out something about the staff. And then I need to do another adventure where the swordmaster learns about this blade Okay, now I need to run five adventures to learn one key knowledge from each of the five items that the group yeah. has. And groups are going to end up with more than one item, so that just fractally expands <laughs> the space. And with all of that going on, how am I going to run my story of the evil horror that is yeah. causing problems? Well, what you do is when you're creating these items for your game, you figure out ways to tie them into that story so yeah. that you can be serving multiple objectives at the same time. It is not only a story where they learn 
a key knowledge from this sword's background that allows them to weave the rank three or rank four or rank five thread or whatever, that adventure is also in some capacity forwarding another story arc or serving as a character exploration. It's yeah. it's a trick that you hear a lot about listening to writing advice podcasts. Yeah. The more purposes a scene can serve at the same time, in some ways, the, the better it is overall. It can serve a thematic purpose. It can serve introducing a character. It can serve a whole bunch of different things. And you just try and do that with your magic items. It might be, and I kind of do this myself, is that I might choose a signature item or a significant item for each character, even if they have multiple ones, but have like just one item perhaps connected in some way or something like that, and not worry so much maybe about secondary items that they come up with and have those be the ones that you hand wave and say, the key knowledge has been done. Finding that information isn't very difficult and we're gonna hand wave that. Yeah, in some cases when you're running a game, it might just be a case of there's this thing going on, but I want this to happen. So we're just kind of going to gloss over this particular situation. Okay, we're wrapped up for the night. We're going to have some downtime. Everybody decide between tonight and next week yeah. or whatever your game schedule next is. Session, yeah. f- next session, figure out what you're going to be spending your legend points on so that when you come in, we can wrap that up in 10, 15 minutes and boom, Onto the get next. into the onto the next thing. If there's nothing notable that is going to be happening within that downtime from a game story, uh, an adventure standpoint, because that's what I would I would do when I was running a home game. If I had a downtime that wasn't particularly notable, we would try and resolve it usually either at the end of a session or at the beginning of the next one. Yeah, to just kind of get noted down and figure out okay, make the roles that we need to. Okay, you spent legend points here. You need to circle up and just kind of gloss over that when it isn't a a big deal. Yeah. So no, there's a, there's yeah. a balance. There's a balance to be found in there. I'm with you. So back to Jean Baptiste's uh, rest of his email. Another aspect I am sometimes questioning myself on is the specificity of spells or talents versus the creativity of the players. It is one of the great pleasures of role-playing games to be surprised by the creativity of your players, and they are always very good at imagining new uses of their abilities, spells, talents, and so on. For the story to be fun, the rule of cool is very important so that your players are encouraged in their creativity. Earthdawn is a system that by design has hundreds of spells and talents, and in order to give interest to the progressions, new spells and talents have to be unlocked in your progression tree as you go further in the game. I have always had a hard time trying to balance the rule of cool with the fact that the creative use they thought of for a talent is often another talent or a knack. Some strategies I have been using to encourage creativity while preserving game balance are the rule of cool uniqueness, i.e. that I will allow usage of an ability that is not as per the rules, but actually close enough just one time, after which they need to learn the actual talent or knack. Another strategy I have used is the it's magic, where if they have the idea to use something that actually exists, like a knack, they can just learn it on the fly. Spending the legend points... What are your thoughts and strategies on this balance between the actual intent of the abilities and their creativity? I tend to be more in favor of a certain amount of flexibility when it comes to what talents and and spells can do. 
spells, I am a little bit more reluctant to be freewheeling than I am with talents, just simply because spells would have been designed for a particular and specific purpose. And so straying outside of those, I feel like they should be a little bit more constrained because of the way that they were created. Talents, I'm a little bit more willing to be flexible about, especially if it's something that is an appropriate expression of the character's personality and philosophy and magic. Because with a talent, that is a of an internal expression of that. But generally, I agree. If I came into a situation where a player had an idea for using a talent in a slightly unconventional way, but there was a knack that allowed for it, I would probably be inclined to say, okay, and maybe just simply allow a one-time use of that knack in order to have this cool thing happen or to give the player perhaps a spotlight moment or something along those lines. I am pretty open and flexible yeah, sure. I like that. Let's <laughs> let's, let's go with story. it. <laughs> yeah. And this is something that, again, will depend heavily on the personal style and personality and desires of the individual players and the game master at the table, because you've all got to kind of work together to collectively entertain each other and yeah. have a good time. Personally, I'm a lot more willing, especially running a convention demo to be mm -hmm. a little bit more flexible to give people cool moments and to get them excited and, and interested because that's how you keep things going. Obviously there is a very different objective when you are producing official published materials and you need to be a little bit more constrained when it comes to that. If only because when you are vague in rule books, you get a lot of people coming to you asking for clarifications Yes. A lot of errata needs to be written at that point. Yeah. As a designer, there is a balance that needs to be struck there in terms of what kind of cool stuff can we provide and how do we, from a certain standpoint, put the tools in place for a game master who might be running something a little bit more subdued to have or exert some control over the balance of the game as they want it to be at their table. I didn't hear anything in what Jean-Baptiste said there that makes me say, oh, child, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's all cool stuff. If it kind of suits the moment and is appropriate, bending the rules in some regard, if you can find an appropriate narrative justification for it in the moment. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of cool. I all like right. it. Yeah. I like the way he runs his, ta runs his table. All right, JB, last little paragraph. One comment on this specificity of talents and abilities that I would like to share and have your opinion on is the difference between fast hand and picking pockets. It has always seemed pretty restrictive to me that someone, novice thief, that is able by illusion and dexterity to get a possession out of the pocket of someone would not be able to make some usual sleight of hand, like swapping objects until much further in their progression. Such specificity is sometimes... Going against the expectation of players of, I should be able to do this, which for a game master could be frustrating to say, no, you can't because you have to wait later to learn the right ability. Again, what are your advice 
and opinions as experienced game masters to deal with such situations. Drunkenly yours, note that I still know I am not actually able to fly. Jean-Baptiste. Yeah. <laughs> Let me see. I understand what you're getting at there with regards to that sort of idea in general. That is one of the things that has sort of been tackled to varying degrees as Earthdawn has changed additions over the years. Like, for example, you had Great Leap and Lizard Leap in first edition, which were kind of the same thing. It's just yeah. Great Leap was horizontal movement and Lizard Leap was vertical. And there might have been something in Lizard Leap that it did as an extra or whatever. I don't remember the specifics at this point because that was eons ago, 25 years ago. Yeah. But it was relatively quick to have the leaping ability be combined into a single talent. There are still perhaps cases where there are things that might conceivably be combined into a single talent have not been for various reasons. Part of that might be a situation where one discipline gets access to sort of one version of the talent and another discipline gets a different version because they sort of have different flavors and objectives. I don't know. I don't really have a, a solid answer for that. He mentioned pickpocket and fast hand with regards to the thief, where picking pockets is the first circle talent and fast hand is the seventh circle discipline talent. I can't even think of the different differences right now. So the primary difference as I see it, and you know, people are free to wonder whether this is worth having an entirely separate talent. And part of this is is legacy because they were separate talents previously yeah. and they've never ever not ever been combined. The way I read it is that picking pockets takes one item from a place and puts it into your possession. Whereas fast hand involves switching multiple items and that that's sort of the difference. And yeah, that may seem a little bit of a minor Nitpicky. difference. <laughs> Like the idea is, well, with picking pockets, why couldn't I put something in there? I mean, I think the difference comes down to being a single item versus multiple items. They're all kind of sort of sleight of handy types of things. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I just kind of shrug my shoulders and go from there. Yeah. In instances like that, I'm, you know, giving extra success against your target number. Sure, I'll let it happen. Yeah. Whatever. That could be the, the sort of thing. And it's something that you would need to play by ear and kind of handle at your table and figure out what the distinction might be and why there might be a difference for it. Yeah. JB did send us, sent us a follow-up email. Hey, hello, guys. Sorry for the follow-up email, but 10 minutes after sending you the first one, I saw this meme that actually very well summarizes my point. Good opportunity also to close, actually thanking you for all the good work and inspiration that you are bringing with the podcast. The meme is basically the battle that the Game Master must go through every session. Saying yes out of fear of being a killjoy, or saying no out of fear of making the game unbalanced. Balance is... Individual to the t I understand. I appreciated that, by the way. It is it is amusing, and I kind of understand the balancing act that needs to go on there. But speaking about game balance is ultimately individual to the table. Yes. Different tables will have a different sense of what is balanced. 
I am of the opinion that balance is, I don't want to say a myth, but there are very different objectives and definitions of balance and what people consider balanced. Ultimately, if everybody at the table is having a good time, if all of the players are enjoying the characters that they are playing and nobody is feeling excluded or left out or frustrated at their inability to do things, then it's balanced. Even if, as a strictly numerical comparison, you might think that one character is less powerful than another. A big part of that does revolve around the Game Master and the environment and rules of the table that take place there and the game master Mm -hmm. making an effort to make sure that different characters get their different opportunities for spotlight time and stuff like that. Yeah. There is so much individuality and table culture that is wrapped up in that, that white room discussions of balance, this character class, this discipline is better than this one because these numbers are X, Y, Z, higher than yeah whatever yeah okay but there are so many extenuating circumstances and differences in play style and character and player and game master and everything that those kind of theoretical things i was thinking of a much nastier word for that there but i will not (laughs) just end up being from my standpoint Silly? Pointless? Fair. If people are having fun, who are you to tell them that they're... I mean, part of it comes from the fact that with a crunchy game Mm -hmm. and lacking the specifics or the nuances of the individual campaign and the table culture and everything like that, all that there is to fall back on ultimately is the numbers and the system mastery that one can demonstrate by putting together numbers that are bigger. Yeah. Line goes up kind of (laughs) stuff. Exactly. I understand that. And I used to be into that as well. And I admit I like sometimes flexing a system to see what I can get away with. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, you know, you got to do what works best for your table and the culture there. Fair enough. All right. Last email of the episode for today. Uh, we get one from Tim. I think Tim is the one who's been playing catch up, really, really playing catch up for us. Uh, morning DNA and Josh. I'm going to just mark that down to typing and not that. Anyway, uh, a question for the two of you. There's a lot of lore suggesting that names are very important to Earth Dawn, but apart from the first key knowledge of every thread item being its name, there is not a lot of mechanical support for this lore. How can names be better woven into the fabric of the campaign, and are some further mechanics expected? Should we be looking at true names being a thing? If so, would a true name be similar to a pattern item for a name giver? No, I don't think you can expect any additional mechanical support for that. That's something like, is there a difference between a true name versus a nickname or a moniker or handle or something like that? You could certainly treat a true name, however you choose to define that in your game, as something akin to a pattern item. 
The problem is, at least from an as-written magical theory standpoint, just having that piece of information on its own does not necessarily allow you to do anything with it. Like, you could use the name, perhaps, as part of a ritual magic casting, as as an element in some kind of ritual that is casting a spell that could perhaps forge a connection. The name on its own is not a physical thing. It is an aspect of a pattern. It is not the pattern in and of itself. But if you want to have your game explore names versus true names, then perhaps what you need to do is have a lot of themes and situations where what somebody is known as in one place is not necessarily the same as their actual name and that you need to do additional levels of research or additional explorations in order to uncover the important information in order to take advantage of that. I don't have any ideas right off the top of my head, but what you could perhaps do is have thread items. You know, you've got the item's name as the first key knowledge rather than perhaps have the the key knowledge that needs to be uncovered be places or events or things like that. They need to find the names of the important people that were involved in those things. A common one actually is the armorer or weaponsmith or craftsman or whatever that made the item in the first place, and that you would have to have that name as well in order to continue to unlock that and to just have names be something that is showing up more frequently as a thematic element in the game rather than try and get additional mechanical bits added onto that. Uh, Further question. Is there a way to unweave permanent threads from items, patterns, or anything else? If you have used a pattern item from someone else and defeated them, but not killed them, having a thread stuck in their pattern item could be a big loss. Or if you have found an item that is more suitable for your master adept than the novice thread armor she got at third circle, can the thread be rewoven to the new pattern with enough legend points? Tim. So as written, there really isn't any way to unweave a permanent thread once you have woven it. The only way that that really happens is if somebody else weaves a thread to it, supplanting the thread that you have woven. Um, I think the example that's given is like, let's say you've got a thread item that has two maximum threads. Yeah. And if both of those thread slots are being used and then somebody else gets a hold of the item and weaves a, their own thread to it, then I think rules as written, the lower rank thread gets displaced by the new one that has been woven. And that opens up that slot for whoever had that thread in the first place. But there isn't any specific language other than that with regards to getting rid of permanent threads, which is perhaps in a way a weakness of the pattern item magics where they are intended as sort of a plot device MacGuffin short-term thing that you use to get advantage over uh, an enemy or whatever, because then once you've done that, then that limited resource is used up. The way that 
I would potentially handle it. There are a couple of different ways, actually, that you might handle it. And this is off the top of my head, just in terms of from a gameplay standpoint to not cause problems. One would be simply to, if there is not a need for a particular thread anymore, like it was to a pattern item that was a plot device, then if you needed to weave another thread, just get rid of the old one and sort of replace it with the new one. I would not refund any kind of legend points or or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Just simply from it, because this is something that you spent resources on to get this edge. Although if you really feel like those points should be refunded, if there's not any purpose for it anymore, knock yourself out. I just wouldn't do it. So that's one possibility. The other possibility could be perhaps that you need to maybe just do another thread weaving test against that thread that you have and score an additional success or something like that um, because it is a more difficult task and and do, do it that way. And again, I probably wouldn't refund legend points in that situation, but it strikes me as as not too huge a stretch of magical theory to allow that kind of thing to happen. Gotcha. I think that about covers it, that we had some massively long emails today. Any further thoughts on... No. Yeah. I like the all email episodes. <laughs> we cover a lot of ground. <laughs> yes. Uh, some in-depth theory. Uh, appreciate everybody writing in. I hope you all enjoyed 150. I did. <laughs> uh, folks, if you have any questions for us, because believe me, we'll take them all. Uh, as you can tell, we, we read all the emails in depth and uh, uh, pick Josh's uh, uh, brain on every, on all of these because nobody wants to hear my thoughts on these. Trust me, you don't. Uh, so feel free to drop us a line. Oh, you provide your <laughs> thoughts and they're wonderful, Dan. Stop it. Nah, Stop never. putting yourself um, It's my perfume. So please feel free to contact us at edsgpodcast at gmail.com. And if you would rather leave a voicemail, by all means do so. That saves us both some talking time. So uh, until next time, write in your questions about your legend. Good night. <laughs>